0: In the hill country, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peniah. Peniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were priests to the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Pananiah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart only, her lips moved. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the Lord of Israel grant you your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let, the Lord, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his, Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah in his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, and they offered the child to Eli. And she said, oh my Lord, as you live my Lord, I am the woman who was sitting here in in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. This is the Lord's word. Um, Good morning, everybody. Want to invite our children to children's church? Kyle is not our child, not one of our children, but he's going. So uh, let's open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to our text. Lord, you are a God who hears. Um, you hear the prayers of your saints. You hear the prayers of your people. When we cry out to you, you're not deaf. You may not answer at the time we expect or in the way we expect, but Lord, you do hear and you do answer. And so we come before you now. And we offer up our prayers to you. Lord, we want to pray for our brother, Bob Kemple as he's in the hospital. Father, um, the surgery is over, but he's very weak. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give him strength, that um, whatever the surgery has done, Lord, that you would use it to mend his body, that we may enjoy uh, some more years with our brother in Christ. And we pray for Judy as she's watching her husband and uh, trying to minister to him and care for him and, and is, is concerned with his health. Uh, lord as we all are we pray that you would answer our prayers lord that you would hear and that you would um, give bob a few more years with us that we might worship you together uh, have mercy on him we pray and father i also want to pray for um, steve crowns's brother michael and in his struggle with uh, diabetes uh, lord i know what a debilitating what, a, what a, a strong disease that can be that's what killed my father and so I pray for Michael that you would give him and his doctor's wisdom in finding a balance as far as um, the medication levels and that you would uh, strengthen him. This is something he can live with, but uh, Lord, getting there can sometimes be a struggle. So have mercy on him and, and help him find his way. Lord, now as we turn to this book of First Samuel, we pray, Holy Spirit, would you show us Jesus? Show us who is the, the true king and uh, what your story here has for us today. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we have been in the New Testament for quite a while. We did Romans, we did Philippians, we did 1 Peter, we did 2 Peter. And that's all epistles. That's a letter written by one person to an audience, and generally has a, a point, a purpose, and that kind of thing. We're changing everything today. <laughs> We're going from... New Testament to Old Testament, we're going from epistle to story to historical narrative. And so um, the the method and the, the approach is gonna change. As you notice, the reading was much longer. Um, when it comes to narrative, you're not looking for these, these thoughts of truth, these kind of contained units. What you're looking at is a story that's telling you something that's going on. And so our, our sections are gonna be longer reading. Um, we're going to approach them and interpret them differently because we're not getting this is the this is what I want you to know. We're having something enacted before us, and so it's going to be different. It's going to be hard for me to change gears too. So hopefully we'll do this well with the Lord's help. But um, where we're at in the story, in God's story, is in First Samuel. We're still in the time of the judges. So what that means is Israel was led out of Egypt by Moses. As they approached the promised land, Moses died, Joshua took over. He led them into the promised land, the conquest of Canaan, settled the land, divided it up amongst the tribes. He retired and then he passed away. And then the time of the judges came. Instead of having one man lead the nation as they had seen with Moses and with Joshua, now it's different people at different times answering different needs. So whenever something would come up, God would raise up a judge and the judge would lead the nation and deliver them from their enemies, and settle them, and hear their trials, and and it was temporary, and it was short-lived, and and these these, uh, judges kind of came and went. There wasn't one judge over all the nation, and when you read the book of Judges, what you see is it starts out okay, but as the story progresses, it gets progressively worse. What you begin to hear is Israel starts chasing after false gods. And God gets mad at them and sends a nation in and oppresses them. And then finally he hears his people and raises up a judge and delivers them. And then they're good for a while. And then they go back. And so it's just a struggle. As a matter of fact, as you're going through, when you read the the, um, story of Gideon, Gideon rises up. He delivers the people. They want to make him king. He says, no way, I'm not going to be the king. And then he makes a golden ephod and everybody worships it. So it just, it doesn't get any better. And then finally, we get to the end of the story the very end of the story, it's essentially Sodom and Gomorrah in the tribe of Benjamin. It's just horrible. And so that's where we're at, is we're at the end of the t- time of the judges. Samuel, who we'll meet today briefly, is going to be the last judge of Israel. He's at a transitional period. We're moving from a time of judges to the arrival of a king. And that's what uh, 1 Samuel is about. So why did I pick First Samuel to preach right now? Well, I, Our current days are so charged politically. There's so much going on that I think it's helpful for us as Christians to remember, first and foremost, we're part of a kingdom. We don't elect Jesus. He is the reigning king. And so part of how we process this world that we live in, we have to think about this king, King Jesus. And that will help us hopefully navigate this world a little bit better. So as we go through Samuel, we're going to watch this king rise up and take his, his place in Israel. And it's going to picture for us and anticipate Jesus, who is the true and the real king. So that's where we're going to be. But where we're at now is where the, the introduction to the prelude, to the prologue, to the preamble of this. We're at the very beginning of the story. And so we're going to slowly move into it. So where are we at? In, that's redemptive history, right? That's the redemptive history is what God is doing in the world. Um, That's what's recorded in scripture. It's It's a narrower focus. It's focused on something particular. It's not everything that happened during this time. So sometimes we have to step out and look at world history. So what's going on in world history at this time? Well, there's actually this gap in world history. We're at the end of the Bronze Age, the beginning of the Iron Age. And the big global powers in the world right now are very busy. So the Hittites have been largely wiped out. They're, they're pretty much gone. The uh, Assyrians are the, one of the big global powers and they're kind of fighting, but they're fighting the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are fighting the Hita, or the, uh, the uh, Assyrians, but they're also fighting nations to their east. So what you get is the northern, tri- the northern superpowers are, are entangled with each other. They're very busy. To the south, the other superpower was Egypt. And for some reason, Egypt just retreats. They had, they had done military operations up and down the coast of Canaan, but at this point, they've just kind of retreated down, and we won't see them for another couple hundred years. And so what you get is in between this, in the promised land, in Israel and Edom and all of that, you get this power vacuum because the, the big power nations are not coming down and causing problems. So what we see is in that interval, in that time, the rise of these nation states. They're they're beginning to build up. They're getting more powerful and larger, forming alliances, that kind of thing. And so you could look at this and go, well, isn't that fortunate that that's when Israel was formed and everything? But you got to read this in light of redemptive history. God's in charge of this. So God tied up these these northern tribes in, in Egypt for a purpose so that he could raise up Israel, so that he could establish his king, so that he could expand that kingdom. This isn't on accident. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar learned in Daniel chapter 4. The most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That applies now as much as it did for Nebuchadnezzar. So God has maneuvered all of these bits of history, all of these kingdoms, all of these powers, so that there's a gap, so there's a space for his people to grow. It's like he's tending a garden and moving things around. And so that's kind of the the world history that, that we're seeing right now. So how does this story start? Well, this is the, like I said, this is the beginning of the preamble of the introduction of the the kingdom. And where it starts with is in verse one, there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. It starts with a person. Now, had you just finished reading Judges and you came to first Samuel, what you would see is that sounds really familiar. That, that's, that's one of the formulas that's used in the book of Judges. In Judges 13, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. So you think, oh, well, this must be the story of Elkanah. This is, this is what's happening. But in Judges 13, it's not the story of Manoah. He's a bit player. His wife is visited by the angel of the Lord and promised that she's going to give birth. She was barren. She's going to give birth. And so there's a parallel going on here. that The author is, is drawing these two stories together. We're supposed to see this as the continuation. This is, this is the time of the judges. So there's a certain man. Elkanah is not a huge player. He's, he's kind of important, but basically, according to uh, 1 Chronicles 6, he's a Levite. And so the way the Levites worked is the, Levi, the tribe of Levi didn't get a chunk of land in an inheritance. They got some cities scattered throughout the tribes. So that's why he could be from Ephrathah is that's where he, his lot fell. That's where he wound up moving. The story though, is that he has two wives. Now immediately we're probably a little prejudiced and going, well, this guy's, you know, what's he doing having two wives, but actually this what we see of him in the story. He's not a bad guy. He's a decent guy, but he has two wives. One is Hannah. The other is Paniah and Paniah had children, but Hannah didn't. So here's the theory. The theory is that um, Elkanah loved Hannah and he married her. And what he found is after a few years, they weren't able to produce children. Well, in the ancient Near East, if you don't have children, you've got nobody to hand your inheritance on to. You have nobody who's going to take care of you in old age. You have nobody to train to work the fields or the the, uh, industry or whatever it is that your family does. And so this is not a good situation for Elkanah to be in. So he takes a second wife benaniah and she winds up having children and now he's got somebody to hand his his inheritance off to that's a theory we don't know for sure just kind of reading the story here so the reason i said this is a good man is verse three now this man used to go up year by year to worship and sacrifice to the lord at shiloh this is before jerusalem is jerusalem the the temple hasn't even been considered yet the tabernacle wound up in shiloh and so that's where you went to worship. So this this Levite who would have his time serving at the tabernacle, never mentioned here, takes his family to worship there as well. So they go up and they worship at that place. They mention Eli, Hophni, and Phineas. We'll, we'll meet them later. They're just that's the extent of their involvement at this point. We'll meet Eli a little bit later, but uh, we'll hear more about them in the in the coming weeks. So let's press on. So this Elkanah is a good godly man. He loves his wife. He tolerates his second wife. He takes him up to worship. And that's where we meet Hannah. And so what's Hannah's story? Well, Hannah is the loved one. She's the one that that Elkanah loved, but she's got huge problems. Um, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. So Peniah would say, uh, at the dinner table, uh, you know, do you know what little Elkana Jr. did today, Hannah? Have you heard? It's just been wonderful. And, and she would just tout the fact that she had children and Hannah didn't. It, it provoked her and grievously irritated her. So we don't know much about Panaya, but I don't like her. I already don't like her. She's lording this over Hannah, the one thing that Hannah wants. And so what we hear is her rival used to provoke her. Um, and it happened year by year this wasn't just a momentary thing this happened repeatedly continually as a matter of fact it says that benaiah had sons and daughters so that's at least four right two sons two daughters could be more you're going to have a child about once a year once every nine months so this parade of children before hannah has been going on for a long time and so poor hannah has watched this happen and, and it's gone on year by year. So in verse 10, we hear that she was deeply distressed. This really troubled her. In verse 15, she tells Eli, I am a woman troubled in spirit. She is really upset about this. As a matter of fact, in verse 7, it says that she wept and would not eat. That's how upset she was about this. Why was she so upset about not having children? Well... Some people just really love the idea of having children. They just want to have children. But there's even more of that pressure in the ancient Near East because a woman who was barren was not providing for the family. The man could have children all over the place. The woman had very few options to have children. And if you weren't having children, you weren't contributing. And so the way society looked on barren women was with scorn, with derision. There's something wrong with her. The gods have cursed her because they haven't opened her womb. And so it was it a was huge issue for Hannah that she had no children. And then on a practical level, it was the children who would take care of you in your old age. They didn't have retirement homes. They didn't have long-term care facilities. You had children or you wound up begging or dying on the street. So her heart is just broken on a number of fronts. The thing that she would love the most is to have a child, and she's been denied that. Her rival, Her rival wife is just rubbing her face on a regular basis. And she's deeply troubled by this. So what does she do? What is she to do? This is Hannah's problem is she can't have children. Well, what happens is the next section, which is Hannah's prayer. On one of the years when they go up to Shiloh, verse 9, it says, after they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And Eli was sitting beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord wait a minute, we don't have a temple. What's going on here? This is obviously a a biblical error. There's not a temple in Shiloh. Yeah, no, that's just the way the language works. The house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's talking about the tabernacle, where you would go to worship the Lord. And do do tents have doorposts? Well, apparently, yeah, because when God visited Abraham and, and he heard Sarah laughing, she was by the door of the tent. So don't get too technical about this. Eli is sitting beside the tabernacle beside the entrance of the tabernacle and hannah goes there so she went deeply distressed and prayed to the lord and wept bitterly now think about this for a second imagine hannah's predicament it said twice in verses six and seven that the lord closed her womb so she knows this is not a problem with her husband elkanah he's got children from another woman she knows this is her problem. And she knows that it is the Lord who has closed her womb. She is bitterly provoked by her enemy. She is held in, um, in low esteem by the society around her. She is a woman in trouble. And where does she go? Does she go to a witch doctor to figure out if there's some magic spell that she can get pregnant, use to get pregnant? This is an incredible woman. She turns to the one person who has caused her problem. She turns to the Lord. She goes to the temple and she prays. She calls out to the one who is inflicting this on her and therefore the one who can lift us from her. This is the woman that we meet. This is is where the story of the king starts with a a severely marginalized woman turning to God. And so she goes and she prays and, and Eli sees her praying and her mouth's moving, but he doesn't hear any words coming out. Now, I've heard in the past that people say, well, you see, you're supposed to pray out loud. It's it's biblical. It's like, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. You can pray quietly. And as a matter of fact, this proof, this text proves that you can pray quietly because Hannah's praying quietly and the Lord heard her anyway. So don't get uh, hung up about the, the method of prayer here. She is so upset she can't get the words out of her mouth. She's just sitting there and she's pouring out her heart to the Lord and not a sound is coming out. And so Eli... Remember the the time frame we're in, the time of the judges. Not a good time for Israel. So it would not be out of line to look over, see this woman praying like that and go, well, she's drunk. Drunks come by the temple all the time. People come to offer sacrifices. They get drunk on their wine, and then they they, they do stuff like this. So that's not out of line that he would see this. It's not an unreasonable thing. And so he rebukes her. How long are you going to be drunk? Put your wine away from you. Stop doing this. And she, said, she she explains, no, that's not what's going on. I'm, I'm not like that. I'm not a worthless woman. I'm a troubled woman. I'm a, I'm a distressed woman. I'm here pouring out my heart to the Lord. And so Eli says, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant you your petition that you've made to him. He issues a blessing in the end. May God hear what you've asked for. May he grant what, he's, what you've asked of him. Go your way. Go in peace. And so this is a comfort to her. She, she gets up and she goes. She go in peace and, and may the God of Israel grant your petition. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate and drank and her face was no longer sad. She had poured out her heart to the Lord. The representative of God standing at the temple came and pronounced blessing on her and she's happy. Is she pregnant at this point? Nope. Nothing has changed. Except she has poured her heart out to the Lord, and she's ready to receive whatever He has to offer her. So that is Hannah's prayer. The other part of the prayer that's really shocking is she says that whatever God gives her, if, if God will give her the son, then she says, "I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life." The one thing that she wants, the one thing that she needs, the thing that has been denied her, that has caused her the most problem is not having a son, and she says, Lord, if you give me this son, I'm going to take him home, and I'm going to raise him upright, and I'm going to keep him with me, and I'll never let him out. But no, she says, Lord, if you give me this, I'm going to give him right back to you. He's yours. I'm going to take him and just drop him off with you. The one thing in my world that would make me happy is yours. I can't conceive of that. I, that would not be my approach. I wouldn't have approached it that way. I'd be like, well, thank you, Lord. Let me go tell everybody what you did for me. And I'll show him my son, Samuel, and, and it's how proud I am that the Lord gave me this son. But that's not Hannah's approach. She's a unique woman. She is, she is something special. And so she promises, I will give this to the Lord, this, this great, tremendous blessing that he's given me. I'll give it right back to him. How would you do with that? I know I wouldn't do particularly well. I would be thankful. I'd be glad. But I don't know if I would give it to the Lord like that. That's incredible that she would do that. And so then what happens? How how does the Lord answer this? Verse 19, they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah. So that night they've, they've gone, they've worshiped. They get up in the morning. They're gonna offer worship one more time before they hit the road back to Ramah. And so that's what they do. They get up and they go. And Elkanah knew his wife and the Lord remembered her. They had relations, they had marital relations. But that's not why she got pregnant. They had had relations numerous times before and it didn't work. Why did it work this time? The Lord remembered her. God had closed her womb. God now opened her womb. The Lord remembered her. He heard her prayer and he answered. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel for she said, "I I have asked for him from the Lord. She has a child. Even in naming him, she's acknowledging this is a gift of God. This is what I've been waiting for. So Elkanah continues doing what he normally does. He, he and his house went up to offer the Lord their yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. Somewhere along the line, he made a vow too. So Hannah had vowed to the Lord, "I will give him to you." And now uh, Elkanah has made a vow too. So he goes to pay his vow, but Hannah doesn't go up, and she said, "As soon as the child is winged, I will bring him. T- I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever." And Elkanah, her husband, said, do what seems best for you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So she's going to raise this child to the point where he's able to be handed off, and then she will hand him off. So this is hard to pin down how many years this was. Um, in, in our modern culture, it, it's usually about a year or so, and then you wean your child. In ancient Near East culture, I've heard three years, I've heard even six years before they would wean a child. So. We're getting the story compacted. It's going really fast, but this is actually years that she's watching this child grow. She's delivered him. She's suckled him the first time. She's changed his diaper. She's teaching him how to speak. She's heard him say, Mama, Papa. She has watched him begin to walk. She's made clothes for him. She's spending all of this time with this precious little gift that God's given her. And yet she's still determined when he's ready, I'm going to give him to the Lord there's a story of an ancient Greek merchant who vowed to his gods that if they delivered him from a storm that he would offer a hundred bulls and once the storm had subsided he modified his vow and said it'll be one bull and so then he goes home and as he's heading home he says well maybe it will be one sheep and then after he gets home he gets there and he sees the sheep he grabs a bunch of dates and he heads off to offer sacrifice to his god and So now he's got a handful of dates. Well, he gets hungry on the road and he eats them. And so by the time he gets to the altar to deliver his vow to his God, it's a handful of stones. It's easy to make the vow in that moment of distress. It's difficult to live up to it, to follow through with it. It must have been murder for her to see, to bond with her children. I watched Lisa when she would have a baby and how she would bond with that child. And it was such a tight, Strong bond. Even in the Bible, it talks about, will a mother ever forget her child? But the Lord will never forgive you. That's the, the bar there of that bond between mother and child. And the whole time Hannah is raising this child, she's saying, Lord, he's yours. He's gone. He's not mine. I'm going to hand him off. He's, he's going to be yours. I'm going to put him into your hands. And so that's where she's at now. He's he's however year old, however many years old he is, three, six, whatever it is, it's time. And so when she weaned him, she took him up with her. And it says, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. One of the problems with the book of 1 Samuel is that the Hebrew text is um, got some issues. And there's some, some questions about what, how, how things are worded here. Um, it's still reliable. It doesn't mean it's like not reliable one of the issues here is in the hebrew that we have it says a three-year-old bull the septuagint which is the the greek translation which happened between the end of the old testament and new testament says three bulls so which one is accurate Uh, is the septuagint accurate or is the hebrew accurate Um, it's hard to tell The, the septuagint is a picture of an early version so There's these kind of questions like that. Um, The reason I think that modern interpreters go with a three-year-old bull instead of three bulls is because later it's they slaughtered the bull. So if it was three bulls, then they only slaughtered one of them and that doesn't sound right. So there'll be a couple of issues like that that come up here um, throughout the book of of Samuel. We're gonna just hit these problems um, and and we'll kind of wrestle through them as we go. Again, they're not, is that monumental, whether it was one bull or three? Does that invalidate the entire book of First Samuel? Still totally legit. It's just these, these minor details that, that need to be worked out a little bit. So she takes a bull, an ephah, of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought them to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young, so he's still little, and they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli you would expect they slaughtered the bull and they brought the meat to Eli. That would be the offering. Well, yeah, that's implied, but they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child. The child is the offering to the Lord. The child is what she's going to offer up to him. And so she brings it to Eli and she needs to remind him. It's been a handful of years. And she says, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence praying. Do you remember that? And Eli's, oh, yeah. Yeah, this is, this is the son. This is the boy. And so she is glad and she prays. Um, she says, for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. What a curious thing, he's lent. When you lend something, it implies you're going to take it back at some point. But she says this curious phrase, as long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord. So what does that mean? Well, the word for lent in Hebrew is also the word for say. So this is her saying, just as the Lord promised, so I'm promising now. It's not, I don't think the meaning there is that he's he's temporarily assigned to the Lord. It's that she is honoring her word, the word that she spoke, she's going to do. And so as long as he lives, he, he, is, he is lent to the Lord. There's another thing that Elkanah said that I glazed over and I want to go back to. Elkanah said, um, do what you see is right and may the Lord establish his word. What word is Elkanah referring to that he's going to establish? From the text, we don't see the Lord affirming to um, uh, Hannah that he was going to give her a child or any of that. So what I think is going on is I think Elkanah is saying something particular about, you know, may the Lord establish everything that, that you've promised, all that's been said. But I think it's also kind of foreshadowing a little bit bigger, something much larger. May the Lord honor his word may he keep his word may his word be established all of his word all of what he's he said so far all of the septuagint or all of the uh, the uh, pentateuch all five books of moses what he's promised there may he establish that and of course he will and that's what we're going to see unfold in the rest of the story and so this this verse ends with and he worshiped the lord there who's he I think it can only be Samuel. That, that, that's that got to be who it's talking about. The Lord, I will lend him to the Lord. The last person to speak was Hannah. So when it says he worshiped the Lord there, I think that's a, a way of summarizing Hannah has delivered him into the service of the Lord. And this is where he's going to work now. He's going to dwell in the temple. He's going to serve in the temple. He's going to worship there. Now, as the story unfolds, we'll get to a point where it says that Samuel did not know the Lord yet. So, his worship is not necessarily a heart worship yet, but it will be. And it's kind of echoing that and looking forward to that. So here's one of the questions. One of the things that Peter taught us was when we read the Bible, the interpretive key to the scriptures is Jesus Christ. That was when he said, we have the prophetic word made more sure. The the prophecies that were given to us in the old covenant All of them have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We have them more sure because we see the reality of it. So here's my question for us this morning. Where's Jesus in this? Where is he? How do we find Jesus in here? If we're going to read the Old Testament the way the New Testament teaches us to, which is to find Christ, we have to ask that question of this text. And the point is, he's not here yet. So when we're looking at this and we're reading this, that what we're given is not, here's what Jesus is gonna be like. That's gonna come later as we get to the kings and the kings rise up and, and establish the kingdom and defeat their enemies and all of those things. At this point, what I think we're supposed to have is a noticeable lack of Jesus at this point. There was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That theme, that story, which we're still under the time of the judges, is telling us we need a leader. People are just going to do whatever they think is right. We can say it would be wonderful if God, you know, God is their king and he's going to rule and he's going to raise up judges and stuff. But the reality is it wasn't working. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. What we're supposed to feel in this introduction as we're leading up to the arrival of the king is that, that pain that we can do better than this. Drunk people shouldn't be going to the temple. Penaniah should not be tormenting this poor woman. This is not how Christians live. And so we're looking at this and we're saying, where is Jesus? He's not here. And we want him to be here. We need him to be here. We need that king and we need him now. So this is what Samuel is doing. He's setting up that story of the need, the desire, the the lack of a king and the problems that it brings us. We have to deal with that for a few more chapters before we start getting into where a king is going to be actually a good idea. But right now, when we read this and we're looking for Jesus, you could say that um, what we'll see next week, for example, is Hannah's prayer. She's going to have a beautiful prayer. And that is almost exactly, they mirror what Mary prayed in the beginning of Luke. So maybe Samuel is, is this picture of Jesus who's coming. As a matter of fact, it says that, later in the chapter that, that he grew before God and man. And that same thing is said about Jesus in Luke chapter two at the end of the, the chapter. And so maybe Samuel, no, Samuel's not that. If Samuel's anything, he's John the Baptist. But even that doesn't work. That doesn't line up right. So don't look for really super tight parallels where the story's just gonna line up perfectly. Instead, back off a little bit and look broader. Our problem here is there's no king in Israel and everybody does what's right in his own eyes. And we need that answered. So that's why this is the prologue to the king. This is the preamble to the coming of the kingdom. We're aching for that kingdom. And that's why it applies for us. That's why it helps us is because we're in a kingdom. We have a king, but he's not here yet. And we're waiting for his return. And when he returns, all of these problems that we're having in the church and in society, he'll resolve them. We need that king. And so that's where we're looking at here. This is what we're desiring now is to desire the coming of the kingdom. And that's what's going to be building over the next couple of weeks as we go through this story. So this is how we're going to learn more about Jesus is we're going to have that desire flamed flamed, or fanned in our hearts and and we're going to see the need for it. And then ultimately we'll see how it's a good thing to have that King. So praise God that we live in a democracy. I think the American system is probably the best we've ever come up with. I think it's the best that humanity has has developed and it's still inferior because when Jesus comes, he's not going to establish a democracy. He's going to be a king and a kingdom, and it will be so much better. It will be perfect. That's what we're waiting for. So in the meantime, let's suffer with this, anticipating the coming of the king. Let's pray. Lord, as we go through this story, uh, it's helpful to identify with Hannah